It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 16, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. I am so pleased today to welcome Mike Kwasniewski to the show. Mike runs a whole diet CSA farm in rural West Virginia as part of a larger operation that he runs with his mom, Pam. His Pam's also his business partner. He farms several hundred acres, including beef cattle, hogs, chickens, and vegetables. Um, This episode, Mike's going to reflect on the whole diet CSA model in a relatively low-income rural environment and how that fits into a beginning farmer's diversified farm. Really interesting conversation with an exciting young farmer. I hope you enjoy it. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Osborne Seed Company, founded by seed professionals and dedicated to serving professional growers of all scales. Osborne Seed provides quality seeds, excellent customer service, and a fantastic selection. OsborneSeed.com. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a it's a real pleasure to have you here. I've already told the listeners, you know, just the the standard intro that we do at the beginning of the of every of every podcast, but I'd like to hear in your words. I mean, we you've got a whole lot of things going on on your farm. Um, so I'd like to start off by having you tell us about your about your farm business and 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 how that's how that all well how it all fits together. And I'm sure we're going to get it get more into the specifics later. But just in general, yeah, yeah, I'll give you the the thirty second spiel that I usually have to explain to other farmers in the area in there wondering what the heck I'm up to. Uh, There's three main components to the the marketing part of it. I do a whole diet CSA on the farm, and then I also vend at the uh, Elkins West Virginia Farmers Market, and I maintain a few wholesale accounts as well in the immediate area, probably about a a 50-mile radius. So not really into any urban areas or anything, but with, with all of that, that encompasses a whole lot of production. I do own about 260 acres of farmland, a hundred of that. I actively crop the other, uh, 160 is pasture and hay meadow. And then we lease another hundred, 120 when I say lease, um, or when I say we, that encompasses my mother and I. We're business partners in the Charm Farm, and we've been an incorporated business for right about four years. Uh, and but the business has changed a good bit in that four years. We started out doing grass-fed beef and pastured poultry and eggs, and we still maintain that, although that is no longer the the primary focus of the farm. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's the, the quick spiel. Maybe a little more than thirty seconds, but we'll get into some more of the details later on. I imagine. No. Well, and, and even just, I thought maybe we'd head down that road right mm-hmm. now. So you, you said a hundred acres of ground that you're actively cropping. Right. Uh, right. So some of that's in vegetables own, and uh, some of that's in field crops, the right? The exception of roasted beans. I grow all my corn and oats 
uh, got 25 acres of field corn in on on Tuesday and Wednesday this week, and I've got about eight acres in produce right now. I'll do at least eight acres more before the season's out, and then I've got 25 acres in alfalfa and 25 in a mixed grass hay meadow and the rest in bear fallow or cover crop. Wow, that's a that's a lot of, I mean, not well. It's a lot of diversity. Not just the the fact that you're doing crops and livestock, but you're doing vegetables and field crops and hay and and how many kinds of livestock do you have now? Uh, right now, we just do the the primary. The most livestock I have is on the on the beef cattle side, but I also maintain a. a, a hog herd and lots of chickens. So we're actually getting our first delivery of chicks next week, but I do keep 500 chickens. And uh, let's see. So when I spoke earlier about the acreage, that's split over four properties, although 220 acres, the hundred crop ground and another hundred of uh, meadow is in one location. And that's where the focus of my, operation is it's river bottom uh flat which is pretty rare here in west virginia and then on the other farm what i call the home place is 40 acres of pasture and then a lot of timberland and uh that's where all the chickens are they're just little dinosaurs that i can't really uh manage as well as cattle so they pretty much have free run of that place and i don't have to worry <laughs> about keeping them out of uh, lettuce plantings or any of that. So that makes the food safety a little easier that way, huh? Yeah. 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 But the cattle, yeah. they're, they're uh, treated more as a, a component on the crop rotation on the big farm here. So they, they, they don't really get close to the produce fields, but all the, everything that's in hay or alfalfa is, dual purpose or triple purpose in that it's um, grazed, used for hay and uh, used as a cover crop or nitrogen fixation like the alfalfa or the red clovers. All of that land, I mean, that's that's a lot of land for a young farmer to have. I mean, I think you're, I if I've got the, if I've done the math right, I think you're about 25? 26. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of these things that we, you know, we hear a lot about, about it. Is that, is that family land? It's, it's new family land. I will say we bought it six years ago and uh, my mom has always wanted to farm and this beautiful piece of ground came up and we're able to collateralize a loan and use some of her retirement and, uh, and then move some other real estate to, to secure the land and uh, got into it, but she didn't really have much of a plan. So when I finished up school, I worked at a couple of farms just for a summer and then came back here and really started the learning process on my own farm. It was, I didn't really have the, it was tempting to go do more in-depth internships, but I felt like I'd learn a lot more and be able to invest 
the, the investment and the time and energy on my own ground would pay off, even if I was going to have to suffer through a real sharp learning curve, which I think I, I think I did in the past couple of years has been uh, really enlightening and stabilizing, I guess, in that I've, I've really figured out several things uh, that work for me and work for the ground. Give me an example of, of something that you figured out. Uh, the field corn. So that's, that's, uh, well, heck, every, every aspect of it, I feel like I figured out, but well, much more so than when I started, but using the field corn, for example, and for the first couple of years, it was contracted out to conventional corn. And then I started doing trials. I wanted to do an heirloom. So I did, uh, three acres of an heirloom corn, field corn, and that did not go that well. Didn't have my cultivators set right. Had to figure out a lot of planting. I didn't have the depth wheels set and uh, using old equipment for the most part at this time. And then uh, once I, I did get a harvest and I'd expand production the next year, I did away with the heirloom corn and did a... Uh, non-GM conventional uh, hybrid and then I didn't get a good enough yield on the on the kernel uh, it was too spongy if it doesn't have a long enough growing period it'll dry down and be kind of a, a spongy kernel and then storing it that's a whole nother set of infrastructure so going from the, the first three acres to the 25 acres I do now I've Learned a lot more about sod plow downs for corn, cultivation techniques, and especially the, the storage system because I store all the corn and grind it and uh, really figuring out the importance of 15% moisture on corn to keep it in good condition and then parcel it out and grind it. About every two weeks, I hook up the grinder mixer and do a batch for chickens and hogs. And, uh, yeah, just the, really the, the revelation that there's so much more to any component on the farm than just putting the corn kernel in the ground and expecting a crop. It's not, there's that coming from the livestock background initially, there's that sense of cropping systems as put it in the ground and you sit back and watch it, which a lot of conventional farmers can do if you're on that spray regimen and, uh, and got, yeah, they pretty much don't have to go out in the field and watch, but when you're doing organic production, which I, I, I will back up and say that everything on the farm is, uh, uncertified organic. I'm not really in a market where I could justify a, a premium, but, I have a very open door policy and invite folks to come out and see the, see the production practices and such. If they, if they have any concern that 90% of my diet is uh, produced on the farm. So that's, yeah, the field corn would be the, the biggest, uh, or one of the better examples of the, of the learning curve. And an important part of being able to, I, I would think of being able to produce the, the hogs and the chickens economically. Yeah. Yeah. It really, really came down to the fact that I couldn't source 
corn or especially not G- non-GM corn uh, locally. And I didn't like the idea of having to buy in so much input for the livestock production. So I've been treating the farm as much of a closed loop system as I can. And uh, the grain production is a big, is a big part of that. And so, so tell us a little bit about the, the whole diet CSA. It's a term that I'm familiar with, but I'm not, I'm not certain that all of our listeners are. Yeah. Yeah. So, and no one, no one in my market base is really, uh, a lot of folks in my, uh, immediate area aren't even familiar with the basic CSA concept. So I have to, whenever I start out explaining it to them, I say, well, it's a, it's essentially a subscription service to everything I produce on the farm. And then I go through and tell them what I produce on the farm, which is the, the vegetables and varying fruits and the livestock, uh, along with the livestock, I, I do turkey and lamb seasonally, but, uh, that's Thanksgiving turkeys and Christmas lamb. But, uh, and then I've got a baker that does baked goods and, uh, or breads. And I do buy in a couple organic dry goods that, uh, I just really don't have any interest in maintaining a, a wheat cropping system and grinding my own flour right now, maybe one day, but, uh, I do buy in flour and a couple other uh, like dry beans right now, which is something I'm considering getting into a little more. But again, that's a whole nother system like the corn that it's much more complex and capital intensive than what a person might think initially. Right. And then I I tell folks that every Wednesday evening they come out to the farm. The farm's about five miles from uh, the county seat, the town of Elkins here. Come out to the farm, and I've got the, the market set up, and it's buffet style. So my job is just to keep everything stocked, and folks get what they need for the week. They pay monthly. And, uh, it's pretty casual relationship because I want to make it easy for myself and easy for the consumers. And it's, it's a, a way that I can, uh, well, I should preface it by saying that I first encountered the, the whole diet model up in, up in Essex, uh, New York at Essex farm. Mark and uh, Chris and Kimball's place up there. And that was, that was really revelatory in that they were in a rural area and doing an extensive cropping system and moving all that product locally. And I really saw that as a, as a foundation that I wanted to emulate on my own farm here and make it easier to feed local folks, local food, increase that per capita consumption of uh, local food. So when you say that people come and, and, and pick up what they need for the week and they're paying monthly, is, is that a, a get whatever you want thing or is that a, are you working on a punch card basis or? No, no, it's get whatever you want. And then all the animals are, uh, nose to tail approach, what I call it. So I don't continually stock ribeyes. Whenever we process beef, folks get the steaks they want. And then 
for a couple of weeks. We're eating uh, stew beef and ground beef and uh, a couple of briskets rolling around. And uh, same thing with pork. It's uh, pork chops and then sausage is what's, is what's left. And then chicken, I just do whole chickens, so chickens are always available. But a big part of it is encouraging folks to just take what they need for the week and not hoard two dozen sirloins. And it's it's really uh, impressive how how the the social setting really moderates people's uh, uh, their their consumption. So they know I'm not necessarily monitoring what they do, but they're aware that other folks are coming through uh going to be coming through that day and if there's uh yeah i guess it's it's one thing to walk off with a bunch of ribeyes when when you're on your own and it's another thing to walk off with a bunch of ribeyes when there's somebody behind you in the line at the freezer yeah, you know yeah, yeah yeah so it's it's for the for the folks that have been in the system for a while it, it becomes self-regulating uh for new members i pretty much have to walk them through it little by little and encourage them to take more because it's, it is a novel concept. And with the, a lot of people do direct bill payment. So it, it's that when there's no money changing hands, it's almost like they're, they're getting it for, uh, well, yeah, it feels to some extent like they're getting it for free until the beginning of the month comes and they have to send another check. So yeah, if they if they uh, never see it, that's completely different. Yeah, that's yeah, really interesting. Yeah, completely different uh, shopping experience. But and I, and you've been doing the whole farm CSA for the whole, excuse me the whole diet CSA for how many years now? Two and a half years. So uh, and it's fifty two weeks a year. Do a lot of uh, storage veggies and a lot of protein in the winter. And then I have I have three tunnels that I do uh, late crops and early crops in, so that's that's an important component of the of the whole diet CSA to be able to have lettuce in March and spinach in late February. So that's been uh, a big a big help in stretching the, the consumer base, and it's such an important aspect of the farm just in the steady income part. So people, uh, I tell them that it's, there's, they don't sign any contract or anything. I tell them that, yes, you pay monthly and I'm trusting you and our ability to communicate with each other that you'll let me know if you're moving or if you have to drop out, but I don't, I don't really let people trial it for, a week, um, they can they can come out and see how it works. And usually, once they start up, they they get in the habit, and I get them hooked on the on the quality of the product. And that's really uh, that's really what does the marketing is is the food itself. And how much are how much are you charging for the for the whole diet CSA? <laughs> uh, yeah, some of your some of your folks in the urban areas might might be a little shocked, but it's two hundred dollars per adult per month. And uh, I used to charge for kids. I no longer charge for kids because that's just uh, I like to subsidize families for the CSA. So most folks are paying uh, four hundred for a, a 
two adult household and then I've got, uh, and I'm, I'm flexible. I've got folks that have vegetarian shares and folks that have vegetarian plus chicken shares and, uh, gluten-free folks and all that. So I, I'm not as, uh, I've got about three rates that I, that I use. I don't, I don't, uh, adjust the rates as much as I used to. And yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a bargain It it is, and I it can do that because like it. it's, uh, I mean, it provides me with steady income 12 months a year, and then I still get a flush of revenue through the growing season, through my other markets. And, uh, it's really enabled me to, to expand the operation and, uh, uh, maintain the revenue and, uh, really build the operation out without acquiring any, any debt or a line of credit for capital improvements on the farm. And then that's another, I should mention too, that, uh, I, I treat the herd of cattle along with producing, producing meat as my, essentially as my bank account. So if I have a, uh, piece of equipment I want to buy, I'll go pick out a couple heifers that I don't like and send those and cattle prices are good enough that, uh, I mean, that makes it, they went for 265. All those uh, steers went for 265 a pound a couple weeks ago. And that's, I mean, that's the best we've ever seen here. So it's a good, uh, it's a much better investment right now than, uh, an account at the bank. Right. And you're just taking those. So when you, when, you, when say you want to buy a, you know, you want to buy a new disc, you're just going to, you're just going to take a couple cows down to the, down to the sale barn. Then. If, if I need to, uh, generally yeah. it's, if I do that, it's something odd, like a, like a carrot harvester that I can't anticipate coming up, uh, that often or say, uh, yeah, just something, just something on the auction circuit or uh, direct from a farmer that I can't anticipate being up regularly. You've got how many members in the whole diet CSA? Right now, I've got 17 households, which uh, is doesn't sound like a lot. That's about 35 adults or 30 adults and a slew of kids. And, uh, yeah, when you're, when you're parceling it out in half bushel boxes, it doesn't take a lot of produce to do that, but it, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to supply the majority of the caloric intake of a whole household, it can be a pretty substantial amount of produce. And especially in the, I've got some folks that can, uh, through the summer and all, so that can be a, another prime mover of the, of the produce. Mike, that, I mean, that $200 per adult per month, I mean, on, on the one hand, that doesn't sound, that seems like it would be expensive, a lot of commitment for your customers to make. But when I think about the amount of food that you're providing, it, it doesn't sound like that much. How, how did you go about setting your prices? Uh, so they didn't, they didn't start that way. Uh, and they started a little higher. They started $230 a month. Um, and really as a baseline, I'd mentioned, uh, 
a single household median income at 24000 And as a country, I think we spend far too little on food. I mean, we, have, we spend the least of our income on food of any country in the world. And uh, I figured, okay, if I go for 10% of the median, uh, that's, that's a target. So 2400 a year. And uh, aim for the majority of those folks' diet, which, I mean, folks take it different ways. Some, some are 60% uh, farm calories, others are 90. But, uh, and, I, and I, that evolved somewhat over time into where I just, into what I felt comfortable asking people. Um, I mean, I've got a few single moms that they're, they're not necessarily rolling in dough, but they want to do it for the health of their kids. And uh, I, that was just like a good round number, easy for me to manage. And I didn't feel bad about asking folks to pay what essentially is $50 a week for produce and, and or for the farm's production. And uh, then it would, it would be on me to, to really meet that, uh, that financial sustainability as a price point. Cause I, I didn't want to have a fluctuating membership fee and I didn't, uh, I didn't want to price out my community. Um, so that was, that was a big part and just what I, yeah, being comfortable asking folks that, and it's still, it, it's, it's a bizarre relationship as it develops. I mean, it's not a typical customer uh, producer relationship and as that evolves or as you build that relationship, I mentioned that folks uh, like they're not, there's no transaction happening when they're picking up their food and it, it gets to the point where it's like, Oh, I almost want to give this to you too. Cause you're, uh, I really appreciate your support, but, uh, yeah, that I mean, I it still needs to be. Uh, yeah, I still need to operate it as a successful business and uh, make it as accommodating to to my customer base as I can. And it sounds and it sounds like it is that that you are getting enough out of out of that pricing to yeah. to be able to make the business work. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, uh, and I, and I anticipate growth in it over time. So I'll, uh, it doesn't take, takes just as much energy for 10 households as it does for 20. So, uh, I already have the cropping system has to be in place. So whenever I started the CSA, I anticipated it would be the, the primary source of revenue on the farm. And that hasn't proven to be the case. It's been about, uh, been about 30 to 40 percent depending on the year uh restaurants farmers market uh yeah cattle barn sales various other uh, sources of revenue have been filled out the rest which surprised me um i whenever i started i anticipated it being 90 percent the sole really the sole uh project that, that I'd undertake, but it's, it's evolved over the last couple of years and is still the, the foundation of the farm. 
but it's not the it's not the majority of, of revenue on the farm. Is it something that you're you feel like you're gonna see continued growth in? Yeah, yeah. I I don't do any advertising for it right now and that's something that I'm I've learned that farming is so unlike manufacturing. I can't call up the call up the plant and add another production line or a third shift. Uh word of mouth has has expanded at about the rate that I've been expanding. So last year I grew half the acreage that I'm growing this year. And I mean, four years ago I was growing half an acre of produce. So uh, I, I've, I've been able to expand and satisfy the, my clientele and just learn a lot about farming and do it all uh, really with a low, a low risk um, setting where I'm not, I'm not anticipating tripling my, uh, my membership due to a billboard or radio ad or something. Um, it's just somebody will tell some folks at their church or uh, a friend or a coworker and they'll come out and I'll just add a couple here and there. Uh, generally, it's a rolling membership, but I try to tell folks, well, don't join in January, although I always get some New Year's resolution folks uh, to eat better, <laughs> eat locally. Right. Um, it's like join in April because, I mean, through the winter, I, I stockpile a lot of stuff. So I, I made the mistake the first year of having having a, a trial-like system, what I said, and, uh, like I said earlier. and. It just so happened that the month of February, everyone wanted to trial it, and it's like it depleted my depleted my winter squash and carrot supply, and uh, yeah, and then when stock got low, it was really the folks that that have uh, stuck it out that were really supportive and continue to be members. So that's that's one reason why I discourage it. But if they're insistent, uh, I'll make a few exceptions. What um, what do you think is the basis of people deciding to become a member in the farm? I mean, I'm assuming it, there's other there's other sources of of local food and not, not uh, a lot. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. So, well, but, maybe with that, maybe you should help us situate this. So you're in okay. you're in West Virginia. I mean, how yeah. big is the? You said you're close to the county seat. So how big is the county seat? <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's about 8,000 people in the town of okay. Elkins and the county population, I think is, uh, I think it's just shy of 40,000 people. We're the, we're a really big county though. Um, and then the farm, I'm right in, uh, kind of in the center of the mountains in West Virginia. Um, I'm on the farm now and right at the edge of the farm, it goes to the river and then the hills start it's in front of me and then behind me is the, the farm goes to the road and then the mountains start on that side too. Uh, and I'm at about 2,300 feet elevation here. Uh, the median household income in the area is 24,000. Um, it's not really a wealthy area. Our, our primary industries have been timber in this, in this region and a little bit of coal here and there. Agriculture's 
for the last 30, 40 years been a side project of folks that teach or have a job in town and then they run cattle on uh, on acreage that they manage. So it's okay. uh, certainly not, and that's I'm, when I said I started out with uh, beef, and, beef and chickens, uh, it was really from the the gross lack of uh, local produce uh, and then my interest in just eating vegetables that I decided to get into some more of it. But yeah, it's not really a, not really a wealthy, a wealthy area. There is, there's a forest service headquarters, a big hospital in town. So, uh, I mean, we're, we're making, we're making some progress. I like to think we're, Oh, I don't. I, I spent some time in Washington State, and uh, I, I know you're from Seattle, so I was in Spokane, and I would think of Spokane being a good twenty, thirty years behind Seattle, and then I think of Elkins, and we're about probably five to ten years behind uh, Spokane on on a lot of the just the the new yeah. concepts and ideas and. Uh, general progression that that kind of that local foods awareness and that that food alternatives yeah interest yeah yeah, yeah. okay so if, if people i mean so i guess i mean in some ways you've got you've got if not a corner on the market you've got a, an offering that isn't readily available it's not like somebody's going to go swing down to the whole foods and elkins because right. it isn't there yeah. um so i mean it's the, your membership, are they primarily joining for access? Are they, are they joining, uh, for community? Um, are they, are they it, looking at this and going into really bargain? It's diverse and, uh, and it, it covers the entire spectrum of, uh, political tendencies and, uh, kind of health consciousness. It's, uh, I mean, there's folks that, there's a lot of folks that join for, the quality of the food and the freshness of the food. A lot of folks that really like the meat aspect and it's all pasture based meats. Um, there's folks that like the fact that I'm a farmer that produces a lot of food down the road. And if worse comes to worse and the national, uh, agricultural industrial complex that supplies Walmart fails, then I'm down the road and they've got this relationship with me. And, uh, yeah, it, it pretty much covers the gamut. A lot of folks, uh, I, I'm always surprised at how, how folks come to it. Uh, there's overall it's, it's a, a younger crowd, but I do have older folks who either they're, they got a little too old to maintain a garden or, uh, they just, they like seeing an agricultural business in the area. It's not, so much uh the the pool isn't so wide or so comprehensive in in the population that there are folks going out and joining CSAs for just the community development aspect like there still has to be something on the receiving end there still has to be the food on Wednesdays when they come uh and uh, there's several families that like the aspect of being out on the farm. It's like when I, when I say there's a slew of kids, I, I don't think I could count them up because, uh, usually they're out <laughs> chasing chickens or, 
like running around in the fields and I, I don't see him. So I just know that I, I see flashes of him here and there, but kind of, uh, yeah, that's, that's another important part for folks just educating their kids on where their food comes from and, and seeing it firsthand. Now, do you have a, you don't have any kids yourself, do you? No. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, the the farm has been my day so far. (laughs) Yeah. Well, kids, kids, kids make farming really interesting. Um, Yeah. Well, I've got a, I've got a buddy down the road who he does sheep and cattle and he's always complaining about the labor issue and he got married two years ago and he, he's already got a two or three head start on, uh, He's a labor force in 10 years. So that's what he did. Yeah, that's, that's the thing though. It's a, it's a pretty slow ROI on that investment yeah, there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, it's, I mean, it's been, a. uh, it take, it's taken so much of my time and, uh, really I'm, that's something I've been doing the last several months is really rescheduling my time and putting in a bigger block for, for, whatever the heck I want, not necessarily farm work. I thought you were going to say dating. Um, Um, yeah, I do have a (laughs) girlfriend, uh, and she, yeah, she's been helping on the farm a little bit. So that's a good, that's a good, uh, kind of tempering for, uh, how much work I can allow myself to do. So, Yeah. It is. I, I think it's. It is the good thing that family and and relationships can provide is a little bit of perspective that there's something. There is something actually beyond the farm. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. And that was something that got a little wrapped up and too much. But uh, yeah, coming out of it. Well, yeah, I would say that that's also. I mean, I needed to do that kind of investment to get the farm up to where it was going. And that was one reason why I started. I mentioned all the neighboring farmers being primarily old guys working their cattle herds and mostly whenever they retire, that just seems like a terrible time to start farming. I figured, uh, after going through school, I was, I felt soft and then sitting at a computer too long. So figured, well, I mean, twenties is, is a good time to get some, get some physical work done and get the, get the farm operation in place before I, uh, yeah, before I age out of a lot of activity. Yeah. Get the systems, get the systems up and running before your back goes bad on you. Yeah. You know. yeah and working yeah. with my, working with my mom, it's been, uh, really helpful cause, uh, I, it keeps me in that perspective where, you know, brute force and ignorance isn't going to get the job done all the time. Even if I can, even if I can muster it, I've got to make the system <laughs> workable for uh, workable for folks like my mom too. So, Mike, I, you you actually you came back home then, but you didn't come home to the family farm. You came back and and you guys started a farm. What's it been like, you know, starting a business, but also starting a business that's as demanding as a farm with your with your mom? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's done it's been a challenge and it's been a delight uh we've took a couple years i mean it's the operation has evolved so much from what our initial business plan was initially it was going to be 
uh, heritage built a Galloway beef and pastured poultry. But I mean, the, the market just isn't mature enough to support something like that here. But we have this land base that uh, really determined uh, what what the operation would be, and cattle and poultry wasn't going to support support or best utilize the land. And uh, so that over the last few years, it's really been been a a, a growing to. Uh, fully accommodate the potential of the ground and crop the ground in a, in a, in a good, smart, productive way. And that's, I mean, that's how the, the cropping systems have evolved or, uh, it, it is, it's, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going into, into business with a parent, but, uh, we've, we've worked out our, our roles and our, we kind of have a we have a work relationship, and then we have our our mother son relationship, which sometimes carries into the work, but usually it's like we have an agenda of what needs to be done, and we'll work to get that. And uh, yeah, and she manages more of the the well some of the cattle and the chickens, and just a lot of the overall aesthetic. And I do most of the cropping systems and all the sales and customer management and, uh, yeah, another, uh, cattle on farm and then a lot of the meat processing and such. So that's, that's how we've, we've found how to work with each other and respect each other's strengths and, and our, our weaknesses. So, and she, I mean, she loves the farm and I mean, we'd probably just grow stuff and leave it in the field or feed it to chickens. And she doesn't have much interest in marketing and it's not my favorite thing to do either, but I, I excel at it when I do, when I do set my mind to it. So that's been, that's been how we've evolved and the business plan. I mean, we had that beef business plan, but that just kind of got tossed out the window and, uh, with some, with some innovative, uh, financing through cattle herds and savings accounts, uh, and part-time work or what have you. Uh, yeah, we were able to, to evolve the farm and the operation into what it is today. The other thing that, that came up as I was, as I was Googling around about you is that you're, you're actually went to college for a, as a philosophy major. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious how you went from there to saying, Oh, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a farmer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it took a little bit of a, I guess we'd have to go back to when I wanted to be a chef for years because I loved cooking. And, uh, I mean, we, we had a, good size home garden and uh, we'd raise a couple of hogs and just made a huge difference using that stuff right out of the garden and uh, cooking that up for a simple lunch. But uh, I, I was dissuaded from that because, you know, if you don't want to work doing something you love, uh, then you'll ruin it and then you don't want to do it later on, which I, I recognize is really 
terrible advice now, but, um, and then I, I went to school for engineering actually, cause it said, well, that's, that's generally the way you push folks is, uh, if they do well in math and science, well, you've got a few options, engineering or biology, what have you, and then go get a good paying job and you'll be set. But we'll just have to work as a, as a minion checking other people's blueprints and creative ideas for the first 20 years. And that just, I mean, that really appealed to me in no way, shape, or form. And then I, I uh, really came around to agriculture when we started talking about buying this bigger farm and uh, really started started reading some Wendell Berry and hanging out with some other, out at some farms out in Washington State there. And... Um, I just realized that, you know, that's something that I want to, that I want to pursue and philosophy. I, I switched from treating higher education as career preparation and just as higher education proved really helpful just in critical thinking. I mean, the, the primary reason why I think the farms developed as quickly as it has is just that I'm constantly thinking of improvements or a better way to better way to do the job at hand and the critical thinking ability and just the, the analysis that I gained from my philosophy work has, uh, has, has been the key in, in shaping my mentality. And it's, it also is a job that enables me to, uh, not compromise on my on my ethics and my and my uh, kind of ambitions. So, and it's I think such a creative space that I don't have to worry about not having that creative outlet outside of the farm because this is especially in springtime when the dirt's turned. It feels like such a blank slate. You know, it's, it's kind of like what Edward Abbey, who I, who I think is also from West Virginia, um, used to say was that, you know, he didn't want to be a philosophy professor. He wanted to be a philosopher, which is yeah. why he got kicked out of the philosophy program at the University of Arizona. Um, you know, but he actually wanted to, you know, he wanted to live it. And I do think that's one of the, I think it's one of the cool things about farming is it really is an opportunity to, to live your ideals, you know, yeah. to really uh, you know, to have a way to, to really have a, use your, it's a, it's a way to get your values and make them into something that's real instead of just, instead of just having them and reading grist, uh, .org or, or, uh, you know, slate.com or whatever, but it is a, it's an opportunity yeah. to kind of go out in there and say, Hey, you know, this is what I believe in and I'm, I'm doing something with it, making yeah. it happen. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I think humans in general just have such a, a deep-seated desire to produce something and farming i mean it, it just it just plays every every kind of evolutionary uh, wiring that we have where we're just surrounding ourselves with bounty and and uh we uh, do lots of killing whether it's harvest of animals or little weeds and mature heads of lettuce and uh just feasting just feels like a like a continual feast we've developed our 
freezer technology and season extension well enough where we're not necessarily going through the through the winter famine. Hey, Mike, we're going to take a break right here to hear a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Osborne Seed Company. Osborne Seed is a vegetable, flower, and herb seed distributor serving both conventional and organic growers of all sizes. Unlike most seed companies that prepackage their seed in a minimal selection of packet sizes, Osborne packages their seeds to order, allowing you the flexibility to purchase the exact amount of seed you require. The company has built its business on a foundation of customer service, knowledgeable staff, and high-quality products. In business for 33 years, Osborne and employees farmers with growing experience, a staff that is closely involved in variety trials, and customer and industry feedback to support its ability to excel in customer service. Because new varieties are trialed by the company and with growers, the whole team has the opportunity to experience products in the field, and everyone at the company can assist with growing and varietal questions because they have hands-on experience with the seeds Osborne sells. Grower visits, company trials, and breeder trials give valuable information necessary to finalize the varieties to be included in the catalog. Osborne Seed Company, high quality seed and superior customer service. New and existing customers get $5 off the first order of $50 or more when you mention the Farmer to Farmer podcast. OsborneSeed.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. Fertrell got its start because the founder, John Johnson, didn't feel like his chemically fertilized roses were meeting his expectations for fragrance and endurance. Johnson found that by mixing organic vegetable, animal, and mineral compounds, the roses soon obtained maximum performance. When rose growers get behind something, you know it's effective. Since that time, Fertrell has built a reputation for quality and service that's second to none. Each product is built upon years of experience and has been time-tested for maximum results. All of their blends are produced in-house, and the organic fertilizers have been formulated to meet organic standards with a full-season release of vital macro and micronutrients. With experience with all types of producers, from backyard hobbyists to full-scale production facilities, Fertrell has the knowledge and products to help you get the most out of your crops, whether you raise crops and livestock organically, conventionally, or somewhere in between. Fertrell, better naturally. Fertrell.com. You just mentioned that that bit about harvesting, harvesting livestock, uh, you know, harvesting vegetables at the same time that you're, I mean, it's it's hard enough on a vegetable farm to be, to be weeding crops and harvesting crops at the same time. And I'm thinking about your situation where you've got You've got chickens, you've got, uh, you know, eggs to be collected. You've got hogs that need to be hauled to the, to the slaughterhouse. Um, the, you've got beef that also has to be taken. Are you, do you guys butcher your own chickens? Yeah, we do all our own chickens. How are you managing all of those logistics? How much help do you have on the farm and how much of that, how much time are you spending actually, you know, pulling weeds? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, big fan of equipment and I try to mechanize or acquire the right tool for the job now because yeah, at 26, I anticipate, uh, outliving the, the usable life of the equipment, <laughs> hopefully, um, but I also, I also have some help right now. I've got part-time folks uh two new folks will be coming on full-time in june and uh we'll probably maintain that that size but usually say so for chickens we'd have 
fortified people processing chickens. And I've got a pucker and a scalder. And uh, we we just blocked off like every other Tuesday to process 200 chickens. And we can do that in a day. Uh, used to be, I mean, we started out doing like 50 chickens in a day. We're like, ah, let's push it to 75. And then uh, we just, as we figure out uh, more efficient systems, again, like thinking of better ways to do it and incorporating some some assembly line tactics to, to things like chicken processing, uh, we can do 200 pretty easily in a day now. And uh, yeah, egg collection, that's, that's, uh, in in the realm of my mom's chores and then things like uh weed cultivation i i try to keep nobody likes pulling weeds when i was growing up like i i never used a hoe i didn't know what a hoe was for like the only time we pulled weeds is when we couldn't see the green beans anymore it's like <laughs> trying to get in there and pull weeds so uh it's been such a a revelatory experience to, to really put together uh, a good suite of cultivating equipment and maintain maintain some some uh, some clean fields and a lot of that. Uh, this is well. This is the first year I'm doing a lot of soil uh, soil production. In the past, I've done a lot more plastic culture, uh, plastic mulch. And part of that I kind of blame on the university system because they, that's really the turnkey approach that they, that they give the, the beginning farmers. But talking to a friend in Maryland, he, uh, he really made a good case for getting rid of that. And I, I just hate the high input costs of, of plastic culture early in the season. Onions are about the only thing I still grow on plastic just because I'm not, uh, yeah, and just because I need that early of a start. And uh, eventually I imagine I'll phase them out, but plastics worked well for those um, in the past, and I'm not quite going to gamble with my whole onion crop uh, by transitioning to uh, bare soil. But yeah, another thing that I do is uh, a good deal of bear fouling and crop rotation, so I can I can usually uh, move into the fields once I've seen what kind of weed pressure they have for a couple of years uh, and regulate that before I move into produce. I think it's a real advantage of having as much crop ground as you've got is that, you know, you really yeah. can, I think you can afford to, to make that investment in, in weed control the year before yeah. with that, you know, with that yeah. fallow or with the cover crop rotation. So. Yeah. That's been, been a pretty critical part of just the whole cropping management. So yeah, I, I try to keep, weed pulling for employees to a minimum. They do a lot of greenhouse work uh, and pretty much have to have a couple of folks around to ride the transplanter um, and kind of by delegating all the, all the seeding and potting out of the greenhouse plants that really freed up a lot of my time. And there's always something to be seeded. So 
that keeps the secessions in, uh, intact and keeps them occupied. So you're, you're doing quite, I mean, obviously quite a bit of delegation. Have you, have you mechanized those areas that you've been delegating in the vegetable program? Uh, no, the, the greenhouse production is still pretty, uh, rudimentary. My, my propagation greenhouse is actually a, uh, it's a retail greenhouse that I bought used and then rather than assembling as an arch, I do half an arch. So it runs about 60 feet and, uh, and I cover that with another layer of plastic and then do grow mat or heat mats in that. Or anything, or boiler systems. Well, that, that's that's some infrastructure that'll be in place maybe in a year. But yeah, that system's worked really well for me uh, so far. It's not as efficient as I'd like, but um, it's doing the job, and I trust it. Uh, 13, 14 degrees outside, so uh, I can still get a pretty early start. And yeah. that's another quality of life decision just to do that rather than fill my house up with transplants and, uh, <laughs> end of January. Yeah. 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 Oh. Hey, but, one, one other question I wanted to ask about the, about the whole diet CSA, um, mm-hmm. and managing that with your, with your other markets. So you're doing, you've got the, you've got the CSA and then you've got, um, you've got the farmer's market in Elkins and you've got some wholesale that you're doing as well. And I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, when, when you're, I mean, the CSA really, when you're saying, Hey, come in and get what you need, get what you want. Mm-hmm. How are you, how are you making decisions about what you're going to sell at farmer's market? What you're going to take, what you're going to take off the farm wholesale and move outside of that community that you're kind of promising, yeah. uh, whatever they need to. First market in the week is CSA, and I, I picked Wednesday for that reason because I do restaurant and retail deliveries Thursday and Friday, and then market on Saturday. So first picking, I'll have uh, first crop of uh, summer squash and zucchini will go to CSA, even though I'm not getting like the, the four or five dollar a quart premium that I could. Uh, at market, you really, I mean, uh, really just have to make the CSA members feel as though they are the most valued customer, which to me they are, and I want to treat them like that. And uh, it's pretty easy to do that just by by giving them first crop and like the retail beef that I do. It's pretty much just uh, ground and steak and hoagie just because uh, I can move. I mean, I take some steak orders on request, but a lot of the premium cuts go through the CSA. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty much just uh, kind of parceling out the, the harvest and making sure the CSA is getting what the, the farmer's market is. And then I, so I use the market more as uh, I mean, I, I have pretty comprehensive span there uh, and move. It's become a pretty important part of the farm, but it's also like end of the week. I need to push whatever product I have a lot of. And uh, 
yeah, I, I don't make any compromises on the, the quality that I ship to restaurants. Like everything's picked to order uh, right now, and yeah, I'm not I'm not holding stuff over from CSA to farmers market. But then another thing, uh, since it's um, since I'm not driving two hours to sell at a city, the farmers market is right in Elkins there. So every CSA member is welcome to come out to the market and get refills if they need anything. Really? But, uh, yeah. Wow. That's, that's a good little, if folks miss a Wednesday, they can come out and see me on Saturday and get what they need. And you just, you, over time, you learn how much produce they're going to use. So I'm not going to harvest eight bushels of green beans uh, in the third week of green beans for CSA. I'll, I'll pick two or three. And that'll be enough for CSA, and then I'll move the rest through. Uh, move the rest through restaurants and market. All right. Well, so Mike, we've we've talked a lot about about kind of the the marketing philosophy and the logistics around around the whole the whole diet CSA. Um, I'd like to I'd like to turn now to the to what I'm starting to call the lightning round that we hit here at the end of the, at the end of the show with a few, a few quick and pointed questions on yeah, that. Yeah. I, that I mentioned to you. So what, what we're just going to start with what's, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Yeah. Uh, I mentioned, I like, I like machinery. I like my tools. And, uh, thing about this and I think, uh, it's going to be hard to pick one because it changes seasonally. Uh, Right now, I, I'm a huge fan of, uh, so I do have a uh, suite of equipment that's a little bigger than what one might uh, initially think of for like, 16 acres of produce. I've got a 200-horse tractor and a 36-foot disc and a seven-bottom plow that I do a lot of my spring dirt work with, and that... Uh, I think I'd have to say that disc is my favorite tool right now. I use it for soil prep and bear fallowing. And then in 40 minutes, I can bear fallow 20 acres. Uh, and that, I mean, yeah, it makes such a huge difference. Or kill cover crop. Uh, it's it's uh, a combination of discs, S-shank chisels, and uh, spike to carol. So... It does a good job yeah. of uh, breaking up a, cutting through a clover sod and killing it before I go through and chisel it for uh, vegetables. Or I need to bust, uh, bust up the, the plowed field. Works well for that. And then uh, it buries uh, the fallowed, the bare fallowed fields and and pretty short order and that was something that I got pretty darn cheap there's a lot of a lot of the equipment I have to I'm pretty much going to Pennsylvania for most of it uh, some to New York a tiny bit in Virginia there really isn't any any uh, farm infrastructure here other than what is bare minimum for the cattle industry and right. that's even being diminished uh, so yeah, I was, I was able to pick that up in Pennsylvania at an auction for, 
9,000 bucks. Uh, and that, I mean, it's almost worth having scrap. But a lot of guys are, uh, I guess, I imagine it's farmers that are going to no-till or getting rid of a lot of their dirt work and equipment. And it was too big for a lot of folks and too big for me. But now that I've been running it a little, it, it's a time saver. And I've had the I've, oversizing equipment uh, has been really useful strategy for me because it allows me more room for expansion without having to, like I, I want, I want the equipment for where I want to be, not where I am. And, uh, right. and acquiring that. So, uh, it's more efficient and, and easier, easier or fewer growing pains. If, if I don't have to, I'm not trying to work up, 50 acres with a 10 foot disc. Right. Yeah. As long as you can afford to carry the overhead. And I, I would think mm-hmm. that that, I mean, what you just said too, about being able to get over a lot of ground in a hurry, especially if you're, you're really, you know, you're working on something like a bare fallow system to, for weed control uh-huh. and soil preparation. That's just, that's huge. I know that when we were doing a, a bare fallow system on my farm, that, that just the amount of time that it took was it, well, it just, it, it, it took a huge amount of time because we, we didn't have big equipment to use on it. And, and yeah. it, it meant that it was oftentimes a priority that well, it was well down the priority list right. and sometimes wouldn't be done in as timely a fashion as it should have been. Yeah. Yeah. But then, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one side of it, but I still do daily field walks and I like, uh, carry a little cobra head leader to rogue out yellow dock. And I, I have a particular distaste for yellow docks, so I like that little tool to dig that out. And I got to throw in just like how amazing a combine is. It's just, it, yeah, it's, I mean, really renews your faith in humanity if it's, if it's waning at all. If you just run that, run a piece of equipment like that where you're running over an old cornfield and spitting out corn and back, it's a pretty satisfying feeling. That's a, that's a pretty, it's a pretty cool. Um, I know, you know, even just watching them here in Iowa, I've never, I've never actually driven one, but just watching them go through the field still fascinates me to yeah, to see them. Yeah. You know, you're just, you're I taking mean, down four, six rows of corn. Too, yeah. Mine's like 35 years old and all mechanical still. And I can understand it and work on it. And you can pick those things up, but they either go to scrap or combine demo derbies uh, or you can find them and put them to use on a small operation. So that's been a, with all the equipment saved for some of the vegetable equipment. I mean, it's all been used. That's been too small for a lot of the uh, Pennsylvania growers for a couple of decades and they're getting rid of it. I mean, they all plant 16 row planters and, still using a little four row from, I think it's from 1968. So and, uh, I think, I think there's a lot of opportunities in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Looking, looking at that older equipment. So, all right. So uh, next one here, Mike, is then what's the, what's the most challenging crop that you continue to grow? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of obligated with the, with the CSA to, provide everything that 
essentially could be grown here. Um, and especially things that are a staple of diets and a big staple for anyone is uh, potatoes. And potatoes have, have proved particularly tricky for me just as the, uh, like I know there's a market for them if I don't move them to the CSA. So I've always wanted to plant more than what I could really handle or understand at the time. So the first time I did that, I planted about an acre and a half. That was a mistake uh, just because I hadn't worked out a lot of <laughs> cultivation methods and everything and really how the old planter works and you got to have it at just the right depth. Otherwise, the the furrowing shoe is going to be riding on the plow pan or uh, won't be going in far enough and uh, you won't kill the potatoes and figuring out where they go in the, in the rotation. So I put, I put potatoes in, in my cleanest fields cause uh, I, I use a little uh, chain digger and if I've got any kind of sod or anything, which I, I learned the hard way where pretty much just sending up a, a mat of sod every now and then and then you go flip it over to get potatoes. Uh, and that just wasn't, I mean, it's, it's been a challenge. I love potatoes. Raising them uh, organically makes such a huge difference. Uh, I mean, eggs have always been a uh, like gateway revelatory food product for uh, my customers. Like they always are amazed at how good farm eggs are. But uh, potatoes are a pretty close second whenever they they eat uh, potatoes that aren't, I guess, grown in Idaho. Um, and, yeah, so I, I keep growing them. I've figured out a few cropping systems. Uh, but this year, I mean, it's still been a challenge. We had an unseasonably cold first three weeks of April and uh, had about 10%. Um, germination or growth from oh, wow. my first planting of potatoes. So piled that back down and put in uh, some summer root veggies. But I've done two other plantings of, and just I mean, in the span of a week, I did the first planting uh, April sixth, and then the next one was uh, the eleventh, I guess. And the eleventh, I had eighty-five to ninety percent growth so i mean just that one extra and the fields are right next to each other just that one extra week of uh not being in cold wet soil uh really which usually it isn't like that and i try to i put them out early to get ahead of the blight uh and then i i did a third planting last week for new potatoes uh later in the season but I mean, little by little, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm obligated to grow potatoes, uh, obligated to my CSA members, I should say. So I have scaled back production. I still do about an acre and a half, but, uh, that hasn't really grown exponentially with the, all the other produce. And, uh, yeah, they're just, they're, they're delicious food. So, they do. They they will grow well here. Uh, it's just a matter of finding their place in in the rotation here on the farm, and yeah, putting my time work. 
yeah, getting the it's it's a crop that's worth getting right. That's for sure. Because yeah. when it works, it's, when it works, they're fantastic. And when they don't, uh, it's it's just a it's it's an exercise in frustration. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've, okay, I rolled them into into my produce field, so I don't treat them as their own crop anymore. And that way, I'm checking on them more regularly, and uh, that's been a, an important part of the management too. I think I think that observation is such a key. Building building that into your system is is so important. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one last question then, Mike, if, if, uh, now I realize, I mean, you still are in a lot of ways, your beginning farmer self, but if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, or maybe your pre-beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Uh, uh, that is a somewhat tricky one. I would, uh, I guess do away with the the plastic culture. I mean, I I didn't like. I never liked the piles of drip tape that would accumulate at the end of the season or pulling plastic in uh, January. I wish I'd have done away with that sooner and uh, would have saved a lot of money and a lot of field work because it. It doesn't fit into my cropping system because it produces. I'm not using permanent beds, but uh, I mean, having to having to break down eight-inch beds is a job. And uh, yeah, I guess I I would have gotten started sooner rather than later with bare soil production and uh, done vegetables for all of human history without it. So uh, it, it has a place, but it's not, it's not the saving grace of small farms like some of it say it to be. I do think what you said earlier is really uh, right on point that it's something that makes the plastic makes the farm easy. It, I wouldn't say easier, but it, it, it does turn it into more of a production line, right? It takes some of the variables out, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and it, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm not a, I, I know some farmers who are big plastic fans, but I'm, I'm not one of them either. It's just not, it never did, never worked for me. Never felt like the right thing to do um, yeah. for a lot of reasons. So, yeah. all right. Well, Mike, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for making the time on a on a Friday here in May to to sit yeah. down and and do this interview. My pleasure. From the cap from the cab of your truck, I I, I just I love how farmer that is. So um, nicely done. Uh, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasant setting to park on the road here, and that's. Uh, days at the farm. It is a, it is a beautiful setting. We don't, we don't necessarily have endless, uh, rows of corn in the fields and the corn rows end pretty abruptly and turn into, into the Appalachians, which are fully leafed out now. And, uh, yeah, pretty gorgeous. Although they do harbor a lot of white-tailed deer and those are, that's public enemy number one on the farm. So, <laughs> That's the one downside. That's right. No, I think they're pretty much everywhere. So, all right. Thank you very much, Mike. 
All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again, this is episode 16 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Mike KW string that all together. Mike KW. If you're not already listening to this show on iTunes, Stitcher or the podcast app of your choice, I really encourage you to subscribe to get new episodes just as soon as they're released. Thank you to everyone who has taken time to leave a rating or a review. The more fresh comments we get, the higher it drives the show in the iTunes ratings which really does make a difference in how many people this show reaches if you're enjoying this show please take a moment and go leave us a review on itunes it it like i say it really does make a difference if you really like what you hear think about signing up for my newsletter the flying rutabaga at farmer to farmer podcast.com you can also sign up for it at purplepitchfork.com purple pitchfork is my consulting company and my outreach and education company where i well yeah, you can imagine what I do there. One more thing. If you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listener, have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and food is and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. Thank you very much. Keep the tractors running.